This is Jen Kelly from In Black and White here to ask a favour. If you enjoy this podcast, there's one easy way you can help us get the word out to more listeners. Simply give a rating for this podcast and even better, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photos to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the In Black and White page and click on any article to find out how to subscribe. Frank puts his hands around the man's throat, throttles him, so what they used to call garroting, choke somebody into insensibility so you can rob them, and then they go through his pockets, they steal his valuables and leave. He was the only member of his large family to become a career criminal and they, they could lose a, a small fortune in a, between a, tr- a few train stops. It was a very fast game. Judges, magistrates were constantly surprised that people were still falling for it. When he saw the police coming, he yelled out an alarm. He jumped into the middle of the, the pack of the gang members and they ran in all directions. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we return for episode four in our five-part series called Snake Oil and Swindle, Old Melbourne's Craftiest Conmen. Joining us again is historian Michael Shelford, the creator and guide for Melbourne historical crime tours. Today we're talking about a conman named Frank Curran, better known as Paddy the Pig. He was not only an expert swindler, but also the leader of the gangs of conmen who preyed on crowds at the horse races in Victoria from 1912 to 1917. He would stand on a box, watch for police and bark orders to his gang members as they fleeced racegoers. Michael Shelford will tell us more about the deceitful games they used to trick racegoers, including the notorious three-card trick as well as roulette and another game called Yankee Sweat. Welcome back to episode four in our series, Michael. Thank you very much for having me again. Now, I'm curious to know why you've chosen Frank Curran, also known as Paddy the Pig, for episode four in the series. Frank Curran kind of epitomises your classic swindler, your classic con man of the era from really from the 1850s right through until the early 1920s in Melbourne. He was somebody that um, never aimed to become a wealthy person out of being a con man. He just got by and he used a lot of the classic tricks of the con man to do so. The other interesting thing about Frank Curran, alias Paddy the Pig, was that he mostly stayed based in Melbourne. Usually a con man has to stay on the move. So if you're doing big jobs, if you're, if you're making big money off wealthy people, you've got to take your win, get out of town and move somewhere else. But he stayed pretty local to Melbourne. On top of that, he had the wherewithal to actually be able to control most of the local con man in Melbourne. So there were periods of time when he, he was controlling whole gangs of con men on the racetracks in Melbourne. Now, we might get to this a little bit later in the story, but I'd love to know, how did he get the nickname Paddy the Pig? I'm not sure. So I've, I've, I've looked into it. I've looked back into that era and there used to be old toys made out of sheet metal or something like that that um, had a, a character called Paddy and it was Paddy and the Pig. And when I look at his prison photo, he kind of looked a little bit like 
that character. So a bit of a pointed face and, and sideburns. So I think possibly from that. I, I also know that he was from an Irish family as well and Paddy and the Pig was a, a bit of an Irish kind of name. And where did Frank Curran come from? What was his family background? Frank Curran, alias Paddy the Pig, was uh, born the eldest child or the first child of 11 children. As you'd expect um, the cliche goes, they're generally the ones that live the, the best life because they're setting a representation for the rest of the family. But he wasn't that way at all. Traugon in country Victoria was kind of like a bit of a timber getting sort of place at the time and his family were pioneers as they say, of, of the Trialgan district. So they were quite well respected, but generally um, they also had a reputation for liking a bit of biff. So if we actually, 1912, so we're moving forward a bit in time. Just to give you an example, Frank or Paddy the Pig's younger brother, John Curran, his father, Henry, and a family friend, John McDonald, got into a bit of a scrap with the performers from a visiting circus. So they had this evening, the visiting circus, where they had a buck jumping competition. Their friend, John McDonald, according to the Curran family, should have won and won his five pounds, but he lost. And they dropped by the circus the next day and caused a bit of a row. And it ended up in an all-in brawl. During the all-in brawl, Paddy the Pig's younger brother, John, got felled with an iron bar. His father's arm um, was disabled with an iron bar. And um, John McDonald um, was knocked out by, by an acrobat. <laughs> and um, it gives you a little bit of an idea of, of the family in some ways. They're all quite law-abiding, unlike their eldest brother. And when did Frank Curran first get into trouble with the law? He was 17 years of age. So in, in 1903, and it, it seems like he was a bit troubled already um, just by the, the way that the court system and the newspapers seemed to deal with him. But um, the... The story that ended up in court was that he'd gone into a local hotel, he'd broken into somebody's room, um, a woman's room, he'd stolen jewellery, she'd returned to her room and she'd seen him and he was carrying his boots rather than wearing them, so that was a bit suspicious. Her window was open and she left it closed and um, he was actually on his knees in the corner, it looked like he was trying to hide something and she asked him what he was doing and he just said, oh, gave some sort of excuse and she went into her room, discovered that her jewellery was stolen. He was found by police later, camped out in an empty train carriage that was parked in the Trialgan area, and um, he ended up being ended up being proven in court. He admitted it, that he'd actually done the robbery. He seemed a little bit troubled. He was from a well-respected family, so they gave him a six-month sentence, but with a good behaviour bond. So um, as long as he behaved himself for the next year, he wouldn't have to do his sentence. Did he graduate from there to more serious crime? Yeah, so we, we moved through until 1906 when he's around about the age of 20 and he's walking along in West Melbourne, him and a friend of his, they meet a stranger, they, they're friendly with him, they engage in chat. It's a story you hear um, if you're doing research on old, old Melbourne crime that you hear many times. The new friend, the stranger, says that he wants to make his way back to Footscray. Um, he wants directions. So Frank decides to walk part way there with him and they get around the corner and suddenly Frank puts his hands around the man's throat, throttles him. So what they used to call garroting, choke somebody into insensibility so he can rob them. And then they go through his pockets, they steal his valuables and leave. But he got caught later and he got 18 months in jail. What happened after that? 
I've looked through the old New, New Zealand newspapers and who knows what name he was using over there. I couldn't actually find um, any type of trouble that he got into there. Apparently he had some work there for around about four or five years and then returned to Australia. And that's around about the time he starts becoming a con man. So from around about 1911 onwards, he was becoming known for the three-card trick. And he was doing the three-card trick on country trains mostly. So the trains that went out into country Victoria, they were the perfect place, the perfect work environment for doing the three-card trick. And the three-card trick was quite a simple trick. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would have heard of it before. But to put it simply, you would have two black cards and a red card, or you could have the opposite, it didn't matter. But you'd actually, um, you'd say, if you can choose the red card out of the three, I'll pay you three to one, for example. So you might have um, the, the king of clubs, the king of spades, the queen of hearts, and you'd say, pick the lady. <laughs> Queen of Hearts, and you'd actually show them where the heart was, and you'd do the shuffle so, so slowly that you could actually tell which card was the Queen of Hearts. So it should be easy to win, but the way that the cards were dealt out onto the table was sleight of hand. So normally people will deal off the top of the pack, but in this instance, it would look like you went from the top of the pack, but you deal from the bottom. So the cards would actually end up in a different order than it appeared. And so you'd say, I can definitely tell it's the one on the left-hand side. That's got to be the Queen of Hearts. I saw it um, in the pack. I saw how, how it was all organised. I saw how it came out. I'll back that. And it turned out, turned out to be a different card because it had just been delivered in a slightly different way. Classic old trick, one that's been used since at least the 1850s, probably well, well before that still so well known that people still talk about the three card trick today the way they used to do it on the trains and fool people into playing it would be that they'd have a gang of them they'd all be sitting in the one railway carriage on the train and they'd be playing amongst themselves and having heaps of fun and it'd be somebody who was bored walking along through the train wondering what to do and they'd see a fun card game with everyone having heaps of laughter and they'd actually invite themselves into the game so it was almost like it was the person's fault that had been fleeced (laughs) they'd be allowed to win a couple of times and once they got confident and they thought how easy is it to win at this game um, and the the amount being bet went up that's when they'd lose and they, they could lose a, a small fortune in a, between a, tr- a few train stops it was a very fast game did he get caught for this con on the trains he didn't actually um, get caught as such then but there were references in other people being charged and when the evidence was being given in court by police they would ask the person who'd been charged, you hang around with Paddy the Pig, don't you? You get around on the train networks with Paddy the Pig, you do the three-card trick, and they'd say, well, yes, I know him, but I don't hang around him or something like that. So it gives um, a bit of an idea of when he was first being known to the police as um, being a con man, as getting around the the trains and playing the three-card trick. I'm fascinated that so many people were pulling this same con on the country trains. Surely after a while they started to tweak. I can't believe that so many of them actually fell for it. Yeah, absolutely. And and they used to call them um, mugs, a bit condescending. Um, <laughs> but people were constantly surprised. Judges, magistrates were constantly surprised that people were still falling for it. But that, that's why they had to almost make it look like um, they were uninvited to the game. 
And um, if they are out actively looking for somebody to play the game, it might seem suspicious. But when they stumble across the game and they actually get interested and invite themselves into the game, it doesn't seem so suspicious. And when was he next in trouble with the law? The race courses were the most popular place to play games of chance in inverted commas, the sort of games that con men have made money um, off uh, gullible people way back to the 1850s in Australia. They were usually played in what the what used to be called the race course flats, and the race course course flats were the parts of the race course which were the open parts where people congregated that had bought the cheaper tickets. So the, it was away from the grandstands and all that sort of stuff. Often you get the people who were unregistered bookmakers taking bets there, and it often had a bit of a carnival atmosphere with all these um, people playing interesting games, um, and they were just fleecing people. But they had to be clever enough to be able to pack their game up and get out of there if they saw the cops. And when we get through from 1912 right through until 1917, the person who was running most of the games that were organising those games was Paddy the Pig. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. So on the race course, what were some of the games of chance that Paddy the Pig would have been running? Well, there's another game that I'm sure you've heard mentioned a lot of time in casinos today called Roulette. Um, And it was quite similar to the games of Roulette that you see in the casinos today. But they used to use a, they used to more use like a chocolate wheel. So one of those um, spinning type of wheels where um, they stop at a particular number with um, the little nail sticking out of them. But they used to also use something similar to the roulette wheels, and that was all set up to make money for the people operating them as well. And what they used to do is they used to carry a tablecloth, and they used to be able to fold that up so they could spread it out on the ground. And then they'd actually have all on the tablecloth would be printed with coloured numbered squares. So whatever number you wanted to back, you just put the money, your money, on that particular square. Then they'd spin the wheel or spin the roulette. There was another game called Indian Darts quite similar tablecloth with colored squares unfolded placed on the ground um, and you put your money on a color so there were six different colors in Indian, Indian darts and you back which color you wanted and then there'd be a person there with a dart and um, that'd just be a member of the crowd often a ringing <laughs> and they'd throw it at the dartboard and whatever color they hit that's the number that would pay out it was often argued in court whether or not Indian darts was a game of chance which was illegal or a game of skill which was legal, but they always made money of it, off it anyway. One of my favourite games of all was called The Monkey and the Marble. And they'd actually have a monkey. And so when they let a monkey onto the race course flats, you can imagine the crowds that would gather just to see a monkey. And people would again place money on a tablecloth that had been spread out with numbers on it. What number do you think will, the monkey will pull out of the barrel? So they'd spin the barrel. They'd open the lid, the monkey would reach into the barrel, pull out a marble. Now, all the marbles had a different number on them. The monkey would hand the marble to the person operating the game and the person would hold the marble up and say, number 32, or evens, or odds, and would pay out from that. Now, 
that was all set up so that the operator would make money as well. But I, I came across a police file from the 1890s where a detective was so confused by it, he actually gave evidence and he said, I think the monkey can count. <laughs> <laughs> and he was made the laughing stock of everybody. The police actually did a complete investigation into why he said in court and embarrassed the police force <laughs> by saying a monkey could count. And what were some of the other games of chance that he was running at the race course? There was another game called the pee and thimble game, um, something that we know today probably is the shell game. There's three shells and there's a, a pee underneath one of them. You've got to choose what it is and they switch them all around. Same kind of thing, but they used to often use just like a, a thimble that you'd use with sewing and they'd also use tricks to be able to put a, put the pee under the particular one, take it out, etc. So sometimes they might have a bit of chewing gum under their big dirty fingernail so they could stick the pee to it. Other ones had this springy kind of pee, which meant that they could actually grab it with fingernails, put it in, put it out. So they used to always win with that. And, of course, the other very popular game, the race course, was the one that we've spoken about already, the three-card trick. That was massive as well. I know that one of the games of chance that you mentioned Paddy the Pig was involved with was called Yankee Sweat. Can you tell us more about that one? Yeah, so um, Yankee Sweat, I'll actually give you a bit of a description in the words of a detective of the era. So we're talking a 1917 police report, and it was by a guy called Detective Webster, and he's just actually doing a report on um, uh, an instance that he came across on the race course. And he said, I'm a detective stationed in Melbourne. At about 5pm on Saturday 14th of July 1917, in company with Detective Webster, I was on duty on the flat at the Flemington Racecourse, near the scraping sheds. I saw a crowd of from 30 to 50 persons assembled about 200 yards from us. Webster and I separated. I went towards the crowd and as I got close, I saw the accused standing behind the Yankee sweat table and wheel. He said, addressing the crowd, Come on, boys, put your money where and where you like while the wheel is in motion. He repeated this several times. Several men and boys in knickers then placed several coins on the various numbers on the oil cloth from one to six. Each number had some coins on it. I saw him spin the wheel. When it stopped, it indicated two threes and a one. The accused paid double on the three and single on the one. He showed a profit of one shilling on this spin. When he had finished paying the different players, I said, I am Detective Milne, this is Detective Webster, and we are going to arrest you for playing a game of chance. The accused said, Oh, can't you give me another chance and I'll get away? So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the game of Yankee Sweat from the perspective of the police. Um, that was with a spinning wheel, but it could also be played with dice. And the dice were usually loaded. By a loaded dice, we mean a dice that is more likely to fall a particular way and bring up a particular number, and all because what they do is drill a hole in the dice and they put in a small piece of lead to weight one side of it, cover it up so it looked like it wasn't just the normal dice, and when you threw it, the heavy side would always face downwards. So they had a pretty good idea of what numbers the dice would actually end up as when they did the throw. Did he get caught by the police for these cons at the race course? In 1914, they decided to crack down on him and the police described approaching him. They, they said that he was running all of the gangs, um, the race courses. He was standing up on top of a box watching for them 
And when he saw the police coming, he yelled out an alarm. He jumped into the middle of the, the pack of the gang members and they ran in all directions. But they managed to grab hold of him, but he knocked one of them out with a punch to the jaw. He um, ended up being arrested anyway. He ended up getting a £10 fine, so only a small fine. What happened after that? Um, we're moving through to 1917. So he did extraordinarily well for three years and eventually it just became too much and the police decided to bring an end to it and um, they did complete raids on him um, in 1917. Going through the original police files at the Public Record Office of Victoria, I came across the original police files, the police report about them trying to bring down Paddy the Pig and um, I've got some interesting quotes from the detectives on what they thought of him. And I'll, I'll read you some quotes of um, what the police said about him from the report that was put together from those raids. So, June 1917, Detective Hawkins. He said, I have known accused for over 12 years. He is a known thief and a companion of convicted persons and cheats. I have seen him in their company in Burke Street, Swanston Street and Gertrude Street Fitzroy and on the Flemington and Suburban Racecourses. He is the leader of a gang of cheats who work the railway trains and the racecourses. Detective Clapham, in his report, said, I have known Williams, so that's Curran, that was the, the other name that Curran used to use, for about two years. He is known as Paddy the Pig. He is a known thief and cheat and a companion of convicted thieves, suspected persons and cheats. During the month prior to this arrest, I saw him frequently in the company with, uh, in company with thieves and cheats at race courses and about the city. And then the famous Detective Elijah Napthine reported, I have known the accused for about 14 years. He is one of those men who organises little gangs at the race courses to cheat the public. He sometimes stands on a box acting as watcher and gives the alarm at the approach of a detective or policeman. In my opinion, he is an absolute loafer. I've never known him to follow any lawful occupation. I believe him to have insufficient lawful means of support. So, the police have decided to shut him down. They've charged him with vagrancy. He's actually sentenced to 12 months in jail. But he seems to always have a way of getting around these sorts of things and he appeals to the decision and eventually the judges are suckered in and he's given a good behaviour bond. But the good behaviour bond begin, um, brings an end to his enterprise because what the good behaviour bond says is that you've got your 12-month sentence, we're going to put it off as long as you behave yourself for a year and part of that is that you are not allowed to be found on race courses. So he couldn't go to his office, saying you couldn't go to the race courses anymore. He didn't really have anywhere to actually run a gang of con men. Um, he had to go back to his old tricks, so he ended up back on the country trains. He was running similar scams on country trains, trying to get people to play the three-card trick with him. 1923, quite interestingly, um, he was living in a, a boarding house on Victoria Parade, East Melbourne, when the police came in and raided the place. And... They raided the place because they'd been tipped off from the New South Wales police that a whole lot of interstate con men and women had arrived in Melbourne to take advantage of the Melbourne racing carnival that was coming up. And when they raided the place, they arrested seven people, including Curran, including Paddy the Pig. 
he was the only one from Melbourne. So he must have been housing them. It must have been some sort of a, um, a connection with the crooks in Sydney. Yeah, they can stay at my place. I'll show them the ropes, that kind of thing. All the other six were let off, but they were told to get out of town. So they had to leave Melbourne. He was actually charged with vagrancy again, but again managed to eventually get off the charges. One thing that was mentioned by the police during that court report was that he'd become a professional bondsman. So he was making money at, by that point of time by going bond for people who'd been charged with a criminal offence, and that was highly illegal in that era. So he obviously had a bit of money behind him. When somebody needed to be bailed out, he'd turn up, pretend that he was a friend of theirs, and put up the bond money, and he'd obviously um, be paid by them to do so. And then did he go back onto the race courses? He actually was for a short period of time, so he gave it one more go. In 1924, he was back on the race course and he was with the gang again. So he was doing his, the same thing that he'd been doing before he'd been chased off the race courses in 1917. So seven years later, he's doing it again. He's given it another go. The The police came in and did another raid. And when they did so, he was standing on a box just like the old days and he was watching out for the cops. And when the cops arrived, he told them all to scatter and they scattered. He got arrested. Uh, he was on his way to the police station. The Detective Carey, actually, this is a quote from him. He said, I have never been abused so much or heard such language in all my life. Again, he got let off. It couldn't be proved that he was actually participating in the three-card um, trick. He was just standing on a box nearby. But he was fined £10 for using abusive language to a police officer. And what happened to Paddy the Pig in the end? Well, obviously, um, from my research, he either became well-behaved or he became more clever because from 1924 onwards, he just disappears until he passes away. So he died in 1953, aged 68, and it was pneumonia, which was related to a, a tumour, that he, a cancerous tumour he, he had in his chest. He was living in East Melbourne at the time as well. I can't find anything between 1924 and 1953. And how would you sum up the life of Paddy the Pig? He was clever, obviously a good communicator. He had leadership qualities. He was the only member of his large family to become a career criminal. It seems to me, um, looking through his life, that there were plenty of people that were happy to give him a go. They hoped that he'd be able to get on the straight and narrow. They obviously saw potential in him. He got plenty of chances, but he didn't seem to take them. He seemed to prefer to manipulate people who were gullible. Well, thanks very much for coming in and sharing an amazing story, Michael. Thanks so much for having me again. And if you want to learn more, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and Al Tynan, and edited by Andrea Tees Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Or if you have questions or comments, please let me know by email at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to the stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed.
Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.